The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Your mercy is so great. And we come to You uh, both in desperate need of that mercy and in full confidence that You have given it to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You for that mercy. Thank You for the grace, Lord, that You have not given us what we do deserve. That's mercy. You have uh, given us what we don't deserve. That's grace. And so, Father, in the confidence of Your mercy and Your grace, we, we now turn to Your Word, Mark chapter 5. We ask that You would help us to locate ourselves um, and to honor You. Uh, we ask that You would bless us, bless the reading of Your Word and the teaching of Your Word, and, uh, and that You would draw us closer and closer and closer to Yourself. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Alright, we're in Mark chapter 5. And uh, actually, the E100 just has us doing Mark 5, I think it's 1 through 20. And, um, and that is the Gerasene demoniac, which if you can say that five times fast, you're better than most. But um, we're actually going to go do the whole, the whole chapter. We're going to do the whole chapter of Mark chapter 5, if I can ever turn to it. There it is. All right. So we have uh, Jesus who is uh, coming to the uh, country of the Gerasene. So he is now, he's coming over to the eastern side, for you that would be eastern side, of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And that is a uh, traditionally not a Jewish, or at least at the time of, of Jesus' uh, life, was not a Jewish area. It's called the Decapolis. You can hear in the word Deca, Polis, ten cities, ten villages, not... Um, not known for their Jewish orthodoxy, uh, probably just sort of a mixture uh, of pagan, uh, pagan deities, uh, pagan religions. So let me let me read this. It's a it's a familiar story, but it's a strange story, and we don't often know what to do with the demonic. Uh, and so that'll be an interesting thing. This is not going to be a whole teaching on the demonic. Uh, I will spare you that. I don't really know that I could. Do that, um, and without a, a whole lot more preparation than I had time for this week. But um, we're certainly going to talk about it and see what we uh, what we want. Basically, this is this is a teaching about the goodness of God and the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. That's that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, Mark does everything immediately, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Excuse me. Tell a joke. Well, you did laugh. So. so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen said, Oh, no big deal. We got lots of pigs. No, they did not. Uh, they fled and they told it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And he was getting into the boat, or as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it, uh, pro- procla- to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is a scary guy, right? Um, he is at the very least, what we would call mentally unwell. Um, A lot of the maladies that we see in Scripture that are named as being demon-possessed, we would call them by another name now. For instance, epilepsy, we see uh, that. But Jesus has no sense in which uh, there is not a spiritual element to these. I don't know exactly what's going on with this man, and I don't proclaim, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I do believe in another spiritual realm, and I believe that's what's, in this case, certainly, uh, going on here. Um, The Bible's not embarrassed about that at all. I don't think we need to be embarrassed about it either. I think we need to be very hesitant to start ascribing the demonic to people that we don't like, you know. That's happened in the church once or twice. But there's one right there. Um, So the guy comes up. Jesus, it's interesting. I mean, Jesus gets out of the boat, handles the guy with the the demon, and the the villagers that come out, and he leaves. Like that's it's just like for this appointment. I mean, that's kind of all that's going on here. And. The guy comes out and he says, he falls down, he runs to Jesus and falls down at his feet. This is kind of like the opposite of the prodigal son. Where the father runs out to have mercy on his prodigal child who's coming home. Here you have the prodigals running out uh, to, to meet Jesus. And, uh, and he says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? interesting is now this this uh, story is in Matthew although Matthew makes there be two demon possessed men he actually does that also with the blind men it's, it's kind of a strange little thing scholars have wrestled with about Matthew and then there's it's also in Luke and um, but more more than the others has 
The man speaking, Jesus spoke to him, what is your name? And he replied to him, legion, for we are many. So um, Mark, I mean, Luke really has him speaking more to the spirit or the spirits and sort of differentiating between the man. But, but Mark really has him speaking just to the man and the, the, the demon is speaking on, uh, is speaking and that's really the identity and the full sum of the man uh, is, uh, is the is the the possession? Uh, possession implies ownership. I don't know if you've been in circles that talk about this stuff. Some of you have. Possession implies ownership, and so each of us who are followers of Christ, who believe the Spirit of God dwells in us, are in a very real sense possessed by the Spirit. It's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. We don't call it that very much. It has an unfriendly uh, cultural implication for us, but, um, but we are His. He has ownership of us. And so there is uh, every sense in which this man is uh, owned by this legion, this horde, this throng of the demonic uh, that is, has taken residence up in him. And he's crying out, he's wailing, he's, he's living among the dead, he's naked, uh, he's cutting himself. Seen that behavior uh, recently, I've never had a spider on my teaching before, and now I'm teaching about the demonic. And here he is. So, um, but in um, so it's good news for us that we are that we are possessed of God. But um, but there is, I think, a difference. But some those who work in these circles, uh, and I'm really again not one of them, but um, they talk about the differentiation between possession and oppression. So they would say that Christians cannot be possessed of the devil because you are possessed of God. But sometimes the devil does send spirits upon, uh, of evil upon someone uh, else to harass them. Now again, I don't know if that resonates with you or if that sounds like voodoo, and I'm okay either way. I will be uh, happy to say. Again, I do very much believe in another spiritual realm, but I'm very hesitant uh, to begin uh, saying I know exactly what's going on uh, in that realm. It's so interesting. He comes up to one of you, I, I adjure you. So you'll actually see that the word begging or beg is, is in here four times, but adjure is actually a different word. It's, uh, but it's, it's, he's pleading, he's, he's commanding really. I adjure you. He's commanding Jesus by God. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I by Satan, my Lord below, or anything like that. He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. There is a, uh, the, the goodness of Christ is coming into direct conflict, and it, there will be a, a sense that would feel like burning, like, like torment uh, to the demonic. So good and so pure is it. I've heard of people who were um, sort of possessed or oppressed or, or just dark in their own disposition, coming into the presence of Christians, and they couldn't look at them. They were too bright. And that sounds weird to me, I will, I will say. But it is the spirit of Christ uh, that is so offensive to the spirit of this man. Uh, do not torment me. Because he sees immediately that he could torment him. There is an authority differentiation between the demon and Christ, and he recognizes it. He doesn't try to bow up on Jesus and say, it's you and me, pal. He's immediately under Jesus' authority, 
and, and begs him, please don't send me, it's very weird, in, in Luke it says, into the abyss. That makes sense to us. But Mark says, out of the country. <laughs> I do not want to go to France. Whatever you do. <laughs> Let me stay here in the desert tombs. Um, So, I looked up the word country, and, it, and there's actually a bunch of words for country. There's um, patris, like, like a patriot. Um, who, that's my country. My United States of America is our, our patris. It's our country. Um, agros. You hear the word agriculture, like a field? It's not either one of those. This is cora. And the, and the word uh, is a space between spaces. You think about, like, you know, I live out in the country. What I mean is I live out between the cities and in, in the open space between two cities. Uh, but, and, but you could kind of shade it the other way, like an abyss, right? It's, it's the space between the spaces. So, um, so that it's, it's, it, it's correctly translated as country, uh, like countryside. But it's also, I would say, a, at least a double entendre. It means that we like it here. Don't send us from this abyss into the other uh, abyss. So nothing is said of, um, of the herdsmen, right? We're not given, we don't know what happens to the demons when the pigs drown. We don't know what happens to the herdsmen when their livelihood drowns. Um, that doesn't seem to interest Mark and what he's talking about. And sometimes when you're reading Scripture, you... You're going to have some questions like that. I mean, these are questions. What happened? What about the herdsmen? That just seems unjust to me. That's not what they're talk- he's talking about. He's talking about how Jesus reached out to a man that nobody would re- reach out to and how, how Jesus had patience and deliverance and grace and peace for a man that, that no one else had patience and deliverance and grace and peace for. This man is troubled, to say the least. Um, and I imagine, even though there, I mean, there were herdsmen nearby, but I imagine that people didn't want to go to the cemetery because of this fellow. Um, an author that I have quoted a few times, uh, Paul Tripp, says, uh, there's no bad neighborhoods, only bad people. Right? So you say, oh man, that's a rough neighborhood. Do not go up there. No, the buildings aren't going to do anything to you. Right? We're not talking about the streets or the, the plants or anything. We're talking about the people, right? It's a, it, 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 we're talking about the fallenness of the human condition. That is a gathering of people that we are afraid of. The neighborhood itself is fine, right? And so this, um, this man is, is um, scary. And it's unusual. I mean, you know, we don't, we're not given any of the backstory except that people had somehow subdued him enough to chain him, and then he could break the chains. Now, how anybody could subdue him enough to put chains on him that he could then break, I don't know. Again, that's not what Mark's interested in telling us. What he is interested in telling us is that Jesus has authority even over this legion of demons that are inside of this man. So he casts out the demons. He actually is merciful to the demons, which, again, just blows me away. I don't understand. They're asking... The demons are asking Jesus for mercy. Like, even the demons don't want to go hang out with Satan. He must be rotten, man. I mean, that's just, like, they don't send this to him. 
And and um, and so put us in the pigs. You know, pigs were unclean animals, and, and the Jewish audience would have said, "Oh yeah, well that makes perfect sense because they're demonic and they're unclean." Um, and but it was they put them in the pigs, and the pigs run off and drown in the lake. Like, and the herdsmen run off and tell everybody. <laughs> and I just imagine when they're coming out to to see what happened, they're coming out with pitchforks and. Lanterns and and I, you know I don't know it was probably daylight but I don't it just seems like such a strange thing, and that's why they're begging him to leave. Like this sorcerer has come is going to take over our the, the land or or something. Except for this fellow, who has been delivered. Now again I don't know what you how you see yourself whenever you're looking for yourself in the gospels you find yourself not in Jesus but in the people Jesus ministers to right. And so you are, um, I, I don't know in what way you have been troubled like this or who you know. Um, I, I don't want to suggest that we're all possessed you know, by demons before we come to know Christ or whatever. But what I do want to say is that Jesus has the authority and um, that he will reach out to us even when, we, when nobody else will. Because they come and they see him and they, he's in his right mind. He's dressed. Have you ever been in a family that, uh, or been around a family that has the sort of identified patient in the family? I mean, the alcoholic, and the alcoholic actually tries to then get some help, and um, and and the family says they he ought to get help, but when he tries to get help, then the family does sort of subversive things to mess up the help because he's the identified patient in the family, and it's gonna if he gets well, it's gonna mess up the dynamics in the family. Now, probably not your family, but I, that's um, but it it is it, it's it happens, it happens, um, and so he's the identified patient. Well, okay, we're so glad we guessed that you helped this guy, but get out of here! <laughs> like you've messed up the dynamics uh, of this uh, family. In- incidentally, when in, in those sorts of situations, um, family therapists often they just they don't do the counseling with the identified patient. They bring the whole family in and leave the patient out. They fix the family dynamic outside of the patient and then everything kind of lightens up with the patient. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's free. That, one, that was a bonus on the side. So this is good news about Jesus um, reaching out to us when we feel completely isolated. And then, only then, is it a commissioning for us to reach out to those folks um, in his name. I, I speaking of bad neighborhoods, I love stories, and it doesn't happen in Episcopal circles very much. But I, I love stories of people who uh, move into find they go and find bad neighborhoods. They're Christians, and they go and find bad neighborhoods to live in, so that they can be light in those neighborhoods. I mean, I would I would love I would love instances like that. I mean, that's kind of what Beth Showflat's doing down in, in uh, at St. Mary's. But I would love more. Uh, more. <laughs> I would love for more and more people to have that sense of mission. They're not self-righteous. They're just they're just trying to be light where they're where their needs light. Jim, I have a question. You have a question. Why did he have to put the demons into an animal rather than to just send them off? Susie's question is, why did he have to put them into an animal rather than just send them off? I mean, I, the answer, I don't have an answer for that. What they, they, there is, is a sense in which he could just send them off 
and they're asking him for mercy, somehow being into the pigs is merciful, and then they commit suicide. I, I don't really understand that or really understand the dynamics of that. Uh, and so I want to focus on what Mark focuses on, and that is the goodness of God to this man that no one else would be good to. There is no limit to the extent of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Now, answering the question, the cultural questions like that, I, I just... And why is it so prevalent in the Bible where it tells you... It doesn't tell you what happened to these characters afterwards. There's like no continuum. It's like it just focuses on... Is that just the Jewish tradition? So she's asking why... Then there's no follow-up. Why don't we know what happened to him later? Well, just because that's not what they're interested in telling the story about. They're interested in telling the story about Jesus. I mean, it would be nice, I, th- I think. And in fact, when we get into Jairus and, the, and the, the daughter he raises and the woman, the hemorrhaging woman, like, I'd love to know. Like, what was their life like afterwards? And we'll just have to ask them when we get there because it doesn't tell us. So, Easter declares that no one is beyond the saving capacity of Jesus. That's what resurrection is all about. And so uh, we see a fo- we have a foretaste of it here. This man gets not a resurrection per se, but a resurrection of his life. He gets his life back. Whatever was troubling him, whatever tormented him, uh, Jesus put away. And his mercy was great. His, his grace was uh, overwhelming. But what's interesting is the guy wants to come with him. Let me follow you. And Jesus says, no, go tell people in, in the, your land, in the Decapolis, go tell them how much God has done for you. Why is that so weird? Josh? Because before and after that, in Mark, he tells people, don't, don't tell them about it. Yeah. So instead of having a messianic secret, we have a messianic commissioning. Go tell people about what I've done for you. Well, actually, Jesus says, go tell people how much God has done for you. And then Mark says, and so he went and told everyone how much Jesus had done for him. (laughs) Which is, I think, what Mark is clearly saying, is that Jesus is God. But it is a a funny little uh, sleight of hand there that he does. But instead of the Messianic secret, we have the Messianic commissioning. And this is, that I can think of, the only place. Because in the Decapolis, they didn't have the danger like they had on the Jewish side of the lake that they would get it wrong about the Messiah. They were wrong about everything. So just tell them how much God loves them. But on the Jewish side, they were looking for a military or some sort of charismatic leader to overcome the Romans. And what they really needed was the overcoming of sin. What did he do with the man? He overcame the embodiment manifestation of sin. So it's a pretty remarkable story about God's grace. So then, what? So they get back in the boat and they head. I, maybe it's just because they asked him to leave. But he gets back and he goes back to the Jewish side, the western side of the lake. And uh, looking at the other gospels, it's probably Capernaum, but it's somewhere around there. Jesus, uh, for a time, took up residence in Capernaum, uh, which was a town right on the on the shore there. Jesus, he crossed again to the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered around him. He was beside the sea. So they, re- I mean, they can see him coming and their word gets out. I mean, that's just how popular Jesus has become with all these healings and his teaching and everything at this point. And this is fairly early in his ministry. Um, but meeting him at the boat, it seems like, was one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus. And Jairus um, fell at his feet. And that, and that, 
this is, so we have to see, we're actually going to see three people fall at the feet of Jesus in this. He fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. I mean, some of you have been in that exact situation, but all of us who are parents know that we would do anything. Uh, it's interesting. Maybe he's already been to the doctors. and You assume that he's already been to the doctors, and he... Um, and he can't, and nothing, they've not been able to help his daughter. And so he's laying aside any pride that he may have. He's not identified as a Pharisee, but he's a ruler of the synagogue. And he's laying aside any pride that he may have and just saying, listen, I'm desperate. And if it takes going to Jesus, I'll be happy to eat humble pie. But I'm going to ask you, because I'm a dad, will you please come and help my daughter? And I think all of us would do that for this for our, ch- for our children. Um, and Jesus goes with him. And so we kind of get, you know, he jumps in the ambulance and goes with, uh, with the man. Uh, and uh, their ambulances were, uh, looked a lot like sandals. But the, um, you know, so, um, and so everybody, um, as he's walking towards Jairus' house, this crowd around Jesus. And there, it seems like there's a lot of pushing and shoving and jostling. And, and, um, and there was this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She'd suffer much under many physicians, and she'd spent all that she had. So it seems that she was probably at one point a fairly wealthy lady. But over 12 years, she's, she's spent everything she had on doctors who could not make her well. Just like the little girl, right? Couldn't, doctors couldn't make her well. So what, do you, what would you think about the... Um, what, what, would, what can you know about this woman in that culture just based on the fact that she was bleeding, hemorrhaging for... For 12 years. She's ostracized. Wow, you know a lot. (laughs) She was an outcast. She was unclean. She was untouchable because anybody who touched her would also become unclean and have to go through the ceremonial rites of uh, being clean again. She could have gone through, if she had stopped bleeding, she could have gone through the ceremonial rite, but she kept bleeding. And, and you just imagine like how low, I mean, she was probably pallid. I mean, just, just no color in her face, iron deficiency, 12 years of losing blood. Um, probably not a, just an overflow gush, but just, just a, a drip, drip, drip for 12 years. And, and so she, she would have been the, and you know, we don't know about her faith in her orthodoxy or anything like that, but she could not have been in worship for 12 years. So interesting, you have Jairus, who's the leader of the synagogue, the most religious, and you have this woman who is, I don't want to call her irreligious, as if she was uh, disposed against religion, but she was not allowed to be religious. She was, well, let's just say, call her unreligious, because she was unclean. Un- remember, unclean is a ceremonial distinction, not a moral distinction. It doesn't mean she was bad, although many people around her would have assumed she was bad and that God was having judgment upon her. So she takes an incredible risk to, to be in the crowd. And she definitely isn't going to call attention to herself by calling out to Jesus. I'm just, she's just going to be a little superstitious about it. I'm just going to try to touch his garment and see what happens. And this really weird thing does happen because power goes out of Jesus because of her faith, and yet Jesus doesn't know it. And he says, wait, hold on. Somebody touch me. 
I could feel power going out of me. Who did it? That is so weird. Isn't that strange? Because you can imagine Jesus saying, I, I command the power to go out of me. I'm healing this blind person or, or I'm touching the leper or whatever, and I'm going to make them well. But for him to not even know who touched him, but to sense that somebody has withdrawn healing from him uh, through faith. And meanwhile, Jairus is going, wait, hold on, uh, come on, come on, my daughter is sick. Like, this, I, am, I am desperate here. And Jesus puts all his attention on this woman, who is, by the way, unnamed. Just this, basically a faceless Woman, I think that the authors do that on purpose. We have Jairus, who's important and well-known, but we also have this woman. Maybe they never knew what became of her. But again, we're not given the story, right? There's probably a bunch of like little small novels that you can read up in heaven that have the story, the backstories of all these people. If not, you can work on that when you get there. That'll be a while then. Um, yeah. But the, um, who touched my garments? And you can imagine the disciples were like, are you serious? Like, we've got this really important guy. We're, in the, we're, in the, we're like in the mosh pit here. And people are, anybody's going to touch, touch you. Um, and, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, says, who touched my garments? You see the crowd pressing around you, said the disciples, and yet you say, who touched me? And they're just incredulous. And he looked to see who had t- done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And what did she do? She falls down before him. That's number three. And she told him the whole truth. Well, Jesus, it all happened 12 years ago. And you know, then I went to Dr. Smith, and then I went to Dr. Jones. And, and, and Jairus is going, dude, look at the time. I mean, come on. It was a sundial, but, but that's what he was coming. And, um, and so uh, he, he was, um, and, and Jesus takes this time with this woman. And, and so he says, daughter, I love this. She tells him the whole truth and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And at that time, people came from Jairus' house and said, it's too late. Your daughter has died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. And if that was the end of the story, this would be a terrible story. (laughs) But it's not the end of the story. That there's a very real sense in which Jesus puts off death because He knows He has authority over death so that He can meet this woman eye to eye and give her exactly what she needs in the moment. And Jesus overhears what they are saying, and he says to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe. You've just seen that faith made her well. Now let's see what your faith will do for your daughter. Her faith made herself well. Let's see if your faith will make your daughter well. That's, it's an amazing statement because Jesus actually knows what's going on. So he has, he doesn't know who touched him. But he knows what's going on in this daughter's life and in her death, however many blocks away. 
So they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. I've read that these were actually hired. You, you, in that day, you would hire people to come and wail. To, to um, like you needed sort of, if you were an important person, you needed lots of people mourning your death. And so they sort of saw an opportunity, um, and, and they, they came and wailed, expecting to get paid. Which is why when Jesus says she's not dead, she's just sleeping, they laugh. Because they're not really invested in the, in the grief. They're just trying to make Jairus feel like he's important. They laugh at him. But he puts him outside. He takes in the mother and father and those who are with him. So Peter, James, and John. And he takes the child by the hand and he says, Talitha kumi. And what your translation says, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Um, and little girl is right, but he's not observing uh, her, her height and her gender. Like, it's, a, it's an intimate word. It's like honey or sweetheart. So little girl is a good translation, but it doesn't get to the heart of what the word honey. And Jesus reaches down into death and picks her back up. And she was well. And they were overcome with amazement. And what does he do? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Are you kidding? They all know. She just, she died. But I know, but I told them she was sleeping. So, you know, she just. Um, and they told her uh, and told them to give her something to eat. Just get her a snack. I just, I just, it's the sweetest. It's, you know, and so you, what's, what you have in this story, this, this story, I mean, we've had the, completely pagan uh, guy in, in, on the, the garrison demoniac. But then you have, you have the religious man and the unreligious woman who are both met and blessed by Jesus because Jesus is for everyone. I mean, that's really what I think this, this second story is about, is that Jesus is for everyone. Whether you've been in church a whole life or whether you've been cast out from the church or whether you had never had anything to do with the church, uh, Jesus is for everyone. And there is, no, there is no limit to the extent of His grace and there's no um, ism within those who, to whom He uh, will minister. He's not waiting on this little girl to get her act together before He will do anything for her. He's not waiting on the man to calm himself down He's not waiting on Jairus to put away his self-righteousness. He's not asking the woman to quit bleeding. He is saying to each of them, I am for you. And I will meet you right where you are. And I will bless you. Susie. If, if they knew, if they were requesting and knew that he could do a healing, why would they not believe that once she died that he could bring her back to life. I mean, it's a stretch, but... I, I, well, I'd have to go back. I think this is the first time that Jesus has lifted anybody from the dead. Oh, okay. And so there's the, there's the widow uh, of Nain. Yes. With, with has, um, she's a widow, and her son dies, and Jesus says, don't worry, and touches the coffin. And then there's Lazarus. And then there's himself, right? But they know that like, death is the end. I mean, that, they, okay, so great. He's healed people, even made lepers... You know, he's, he's uh, well, he's done all this, but death, like nobody is reaching down into death. Like death is, it's, 
done. Like we, you, you are too late at that point, Mr. Magician. Right? And Jesus shows his authority even unto death. Yes? Come on. Probably. (laughs) Jesus knows everything. He knows, you know, when you read Psalm, how God knows us before we're even born. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, But yet, when that woman touched him, he asked the question, who touched me? That's kind of weird to me. Why he did not, I mean, it might not be significant, and, you know, in the scheme of things, but to me, I just wonder why, of all the things that he, all the miracles and all that he knows and what have you, he did not know. Yeah, the power went from him, but it seemed to me like he could have looked at the crowd and said, I know you touched me. Well, there's a real sense. So, so Emily has said, uh, why, why didn't Jesus know who had touched him? The, the, the bleeding woman. Why, why didn't he know? There's a lot of times in Scripture where it seems that Jesus doesn't draw on the power that He has. Right. Oh. And, and, and so... His time is like... Okay. Or, you know, He could just be a, um, a lawyer and, and um, you know, you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Uh, but, um, I, I, you know, I don't... I, I'm not sure that's exactly how it is. I mean, I think that I think that he just there's times where he withholds because at the same time he doesn't know who touched him. He knows that the girl has died, but she he's what well, he knows what he's going to do. So there there are just times where Jesus seems to not uh, take advantage of what is available to him in his humanity, and there are times where he does what is available to him in his divinity. Jeff. So I go back to did he actually know the answer to the question because she, because didn't he say that she is healed by her faith and wasn't her coming forward part of her faith and him and her saying that it was me? Well, yes. Yeah, so the, so you're saying he's, uh, he, Jesus was still leaving the, uh, the, the loop hadn't quite closed because she needed, she, as part of her faith that it healed her. See, the, and, and I agree with that 100%. My caveat with that, believing it 100%, is that, um, that I can't say to you, if you come in faith, that you're going to get healed like that. Like, that's what I want. I want for you to be able to say, if you just come in faith, Jesus will close the loop and you'll be healed. And, and that happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen sometimes. It doesn't happen a lot. It seems like a little more than it happens. It doesn't happen. So, Paula. Well, he did use it. Yeah, the whole thing. And I think yeah. the whole thing was, I think he might have been like the lawyer and already knew the answer. Or sometimes when we tease a little kid, you know, and, you know, you know, who's got you or whatever, he, we know the answer. I sure. think he knew the answer, but I think this yeah. is a good chance for me to say. Well, like every time I ask y'all a question, I already know what I think. Well, of course right. you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, then why that's true? And if you don't Yeah, that's right. Now, you'll still tell me. Then why did he say don't say anything? All right. Let me say to you that I hope that you will continue this conversation until about 1025 and then go to church. But I need to go to church now. So uh, there's lots of good questions out there. God bless you all. Um, email me at Trent Moore and our Savior, Jess. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'd love to talk to you about it. God bless you.